Section 51 of Gray's Anatomy, Part 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Bologna Times. Anatomy of the Human Body, Part 5, by Henry Gray. Surface Anatomy and Surface Markings of Thorax. 5. Surface Anatomy of the Thorax. Bones. The skeleton of the thorax is to a very considerable extent covered by muscles, so that in the strongly developed muscular subject it is for the most part concealed. In the emaciated subject, however, the ribs, especially in the lower and lateral regions, stand out as prominent ridges with the sunken intercostal spaces between them. In the middle line, in front, the superficial surface of the sternum can be felt throughout its entire length at the bottom of a furrow, the sternal furrow, situated between the pectoralis majoris. These muscles overlap the anterior surface somewhat, so that the whole width of the sternum is not subcutaneous, and this overlapping is greatest opposite the middle of the bone. The furrow, therefore, is wide at its upper and lower parts, but narrow in the middle. At the upper border of the manubrium sterni is the jugular notch. The lateral parts of this notch are obscured by the tendinous origins of the sternocleidomastoidi, which appear as oblique cords narrowing and deepening the notch. Lower down on the subcutaneous surface is a well-defined transverse ridge the sternal angle. It denotes the junction of the manubrium and body. From the middle of the sternum, the sternal furrow spreads out and ends at the junction of the body with the xiphoid process. Immediately below this is the infrasternal notch. Between the sternal ends of the seventh costal cartilages and below the notch is a triangular depression, the epigastric fossa, in which the xiphoid process can be felt. On either side of the sternum, the costal cartilages and ribs on the front of the thorax are partly obscured by the pectoralis major, through which, however, they can be felt as ridges with yielding intervals between them, corresponding to the intercostal spaces. Of these spaces, that between the second and third ribs is the widest. The next two are somewhat narrower and the remainder, with the exception of the last two, are comparatively narrow. Below the lower border of the pectoralis major, on the front of the chest, the broad flat outlines of the ribs, as they descend, and the more rounded outlines of the costal cartilages are often visible. The lower boundary of the front of the thorax, which is most plainly seen by bending the body backward, is formed by the xiphoid process, the cartilages of the seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth ribs, and the ends of the cartilages of the eleventh and twelfth ribs. On either side of the thorax, from the axilla downward, the flattened external surfaces of the ribs may be defined. Although covered by muscles, all the ribs, with the exception of the first, can generally be followed without difficulty over the front and sides of the thorax. The first rib, being almost completely covered by the clavicle, can only be distinguished in a small portion of its extent. At the back, the angles of the ribs lie on a slightly marked oblique line on either side of, and some distance from, the spinous processes of the vertebrae. 
the line diverges somewhat as it descends and lateral to it is a broad convex surface caused by the projection of the ribs beyond their angles over this surface except where covered by the scapula the individual ribs can be distinguished muscles the surface muscles covering the thorax belong to the musculature of the upper extremity and will be described in that section there is however an area of practical importance bounded by these muscles it is limited above by the lower border of trapezius below by the upper border of latissimus dorsi and laterally by the vertebral border of the scapula the floor is partly formed by rhomboideus major if the scapula be drawn forward by folding the arms across the chest and the trunk bent forward parts of the sixth and seventh ribs and the interspace between them become subcutaneous and available for osculation the space is therefore known as the triangle of osculation mamma the size of the mamma is subject to great variations in the adult nulliparous female it extends vertically from the second to the sixth rib and transversely from the side of the sternum to the mid-axillary line in the male and in the nulliparous female the mammary papilla is situated in the fourth interspace about nine or ten centimeters from the middle line or two centimeters from the costochondral junction six surface markings of the thorax bony landmarks the second costal cartilage corresponding to the sternal angle is so readily found that it is used as a starting point from which to count the ribs the lower border of the pectoralis major at its attachment corresponds to the fifth rib the uppermost visible digitation of serratus anterior indicates the sixth rib the jugular notch is in the same horizontal plane as the lower border of the body of the second thoracic vertebra the sternal angle is at the level of the fifth thoracic vertebra while the junction between the body and xiphoid process of the sternum corresponds to the fibrocartilage between the ninth and tenth thoracic vertebrae the influence of the obliquity of the ribs on horizontal levels in the thorax is well shown by the following line Quote, if a horizontal line be drawn around the body at the level of the inferior angle of the scapula while the arms are at the sides the line would cut the sternum in front between the fourth and fifth ribs the fifth rib in the nipple line and the ninth rib at the vertebral column Treves. diaphragm the shape and variations of the diaphragm as seen by skiography have already been described page 407 surface lines for clinical purposes and for convenience of description the surface of the thorax has been mapped out by arbitrary lines on the front of the thorax the most important vertical lines are the midsternal the middle line of the sternum and the mammary or better midclavicular which runs vertically downward from a point midway between the center of the jugular notch and the tip of the acromion this latter line if prolonged is practically continuous with the lateral line on the front of the abdomen other vertical lines on the front of the thorax 
are the lateral sternal along the sternal margin and the parasternal midway between the lateral sternal and the mammary on either side of the thorax the anterior and posterior axillary lines are drawn vertically from the corresponding axillary folds the mid-axillary line runs downward from the apex of the axilla on the posterior surface of the thorax the scapular line is drawn vertically through the inferior angle of the scapula pleurae the lines of reflection of the pleurae can be indicated on the surface on the right side the line begins at the sternoclavicular articulation and runs downward and medialward to the midpoint of the junction between the manubrium and body of the sternum it then follows the midsternal line to the lower end of the body of the sternum or on to the xiphoid process where it turns lateralward and downward across the seventh sternocostal articulation it crosses the eighth costochondral junction in the mammary line the tenth rib in the mid-axillary line and is prolonged thence to the spinous process of the twelfth thoracic vertebra on the left side beginning at the sternoclavicular articulation it reaches the midpoint of the junction between the manubrium and body of the sternum and extends down the midsternal line in contact with that of the opposite side to the level of the fourth costal cartilage it then diverges lateralward and is continued downward slightly lateral to the sternal border as far as the sixth costal cartilage running downward and lateralward from this point it crosses the seventh costal cartilage and from this onward it is similar to the line on the right side but at a slightly lower level lungs the apex of the lung is situated in the neck above the medial third of the clavicle the height to which it rises above the clavicle varies very considerably but is generally about two point five centimeters it may however extend as high as four or five centimeters or on the other hand may scarcely project above the level of this bone in order to mark out the anterior borders of the lungs a line is drawn from each apex point two point five centimeters above the clavicle and rather nearer the anterior than the posterior border of sternocleidomastoideus downward and medialward across the sternoclavicular articulation and manubrium sterni until it meets or almost meets its fellow of the other side at the midpoint of junction between the manubrium and body of the sternum from this point the two lines run downward practically along the midsternal line as far as the level of the fourth costal cartilages the continuation of the anterior border of the right lung is marked by a prolongation of its line vertically downward to the level of the sixth costal cartilage and then it turns lateralward and downward the line on the left side curves lateralward and downward across the fourth sternocostal articulation to reach the parasternal line at the fifth costal cartilage and then turns medialward and downward to the sixth sternocostal articulation in the position of expiration the lower border of the lung may be marked by a slightly curved line with its convexity downward from the sixth sternocostal junction to the tenth thoracic spinous process this line crosses the midclavicular line at the sixth 
and the mid-axillary line at the eighth rib. The posterior borders of the lungs are indicated by lines drawn from the level of the spinous process of the seventh cervical vertebra, down either side of the vertebral column, across the costal vertebral joints, as low as the spinous process of the tenth thoracic vertebra. The position of the oblique fissure in either lung can be shown by a line drawn from the spinous process of the second thoracic vertebra around the side of the thorax to the sixth rib in the mid-clavicular line. This line corresponds roughly to the line of the vertebral border of the scapula when the hand is placed on the top of the head. The horizontal fissure in the right lung is indicated by a line drawn from the midpoint of the preceding or from the position where it cuts the mid-axillary line to the mid-sternal line at the level of the fourth costal cartilage. Trachea. This may be marked out on the back by a line from the spinous process of the sixth cervical to that of the fourth thoracic vertebra where it bifurcates. From its bifurcation, the two bronchi are directed downward and lateralward. In front, the point of bifurcation corresponds to the sternal angle. Esophagus. The extent of the esophagus may be indicated on the back by a line from the sixth cervical to the level of the ninth thoracic spinous process, 2.5 centimeters to the left of the middle line. Heart. The outline of the heart in relation to the front of the thorax can be represented by a quadrangular figure. The apex of the heart is first determined either by its pulsation or as a point in the fifth interspace, nine centimeters to the left of the midsternal line. The other three points are a the seventh right sternocostal articulation, b a point on the upper border of the third right costal cartilage, one centimeter from the right lateral sternal line, c a point on the lower border of the second left costal cartilage, 2.5 centimeters from the left lateral sternal line. A line joining the apex point, A, and traversing the junction of the body of the sternum with the xiphoid process represents the lowest limit of the heart, its acute margin. The right and left borders are represented respectively by lines joining A to B and the apex to C. Both lines are convex lateral word, but the convexity is more marked on the right where its summit is four centimeters, distant from the midsternal line opposite the fourth costal cartilage. A portion of the area of the heart thus mapped out is uncovered by lung and therefore gives a dull note on percussion. The remainder being overlapped by lung gives a more or less resonant note. The former is known as the area of superficial cardiac dullness, the latter as the area of deep cardiac dullness. The area of superficial cardiac dullness is somewhat triangular. From the apex of the heart, two lines are drawn to the midsternal line, one to the level of the fourth costal cartilage, the other to the junction between the body and xiphoid process. The portion of the midsternal line between these points is the base of the triangle. Latham lays down the following rule as a sufficient practical guide for the definition of the area of superficial dullness. Quote, Make a circle of two inches in diameter around a point midway between the nipple and the end of the sternum. Unquote. 
the coronary sulcus can be indicated by a line from the third left to the sixth right sternocostal joint the anterior longitudinal sulcus is a finger's breadth to the right of the left margin of the heart the position of the various orifices is as follows the pulmonary orifice is situated in the upper angle of the third left sternocostal articulation the aortic orifice is a little below and medial to this, close to the articulation. The left atrial ventricular opening is opposite the fourth costal cartilage and rather to the left of the midsternal line. The right atrial ventricular opening is a little lower, opposite the fourth interspace of the right side. The lines indicating the atrioventricular openings are slightly below and parallel to the line of the coronary sulcus. Arteries The line of the ascending aorta begins slightly to the left of the midsternal line opposite the third costal cartilage and extends upward and to the right to the upper border of the second right costal cartilage. The beginning of the aortic arch is indicated by a line from this latter point to the midsternal line about 2.5 centimeters below the jugular notch. The point on the midsternal line is opposite the summit of the arch, and a line from it to the right sternoclavicular articulation represents the site of the innominate artery, while another line from a point slightly to the left of it and passing through the left sternoclavicular articulation indicates the position of the left common carotid artery in the thorax. The internal mammary artery descends behind the first six costal cartilages about one centimeter from the lateral sternal line. Veins The line of the right innominate vein crosses the right sternoclavicular joint and the upper border of the first right costal cartilage about one centimeter from the lateral sternal line. That of the left innominate vein extends from the left sternoclavicular articulation to meet the right at the upper border of the first right costal cartilage. The junction of the two lines indicates the origin of the superior vena cava, the line of which is continued vertically down to the level of the third right costal cartilage. The end of the inferior vena cava is situated opposite the upper margin of the sixth right costal cartilage about two centimeters from the midsternal line. End of section 51